This is the Living Fearless Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forrester, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. Well, hello and welcome back, my friend. Man, I could not be happier this week. Adam C. Hill is joining me and his story is so amazing. Um, you know, if, if you like reading, you like cycling, you like triathlons, you want to go grab his book, Shifting Gears, because dude, you will be just, his imagery in it is amazing. His story is so relatable. And so super stoked to have Adam with me. He's a speaker, best-selling author, uh, host of Flow Over Fear, just an amazing stellar dude, super encouraging. And uh, yeah, I, I'm sure you're going to be able to connect with him just like I have here. So Adam, how are you doing today, my friend? Brother, I'm doing great. It's uh, always, always a pleasure. I mean, it's always a good day when I get to connect with people like yourself and, and your audience. Thank you, man. I appreciate it, bro. Yeah. Well, let's start out here, Adam talking about like, what does it look like today for you on, on the side of life professionally? Yeah. So professionally, I am currently building out my speaking career. I doing a podcast. I'm, I'm having fun with a lot of that side. And I'm also running a, uh, running a family business. Uh, we have a, a company, uh, uh, called Hill brothers. It's been in business for a hundred years now. Uh, we started in 1923 and uh, it was started. So yeah, I look great for my age. I, I know, but no, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I, um, but yeah, my great grandfather started it. It was passed down to his kids and, and so on. So that, uh, um, now it's, it's, uh, you know, a hundred year old company that employs 150 people all over the Western States and, um, yeah, a lot of legacy there. And, um, yes, but my true passions are coming with speaking, sharing my message, uh, on the podcast and, and on stages throughout the, throughout the world. Yeah. You've got a powerful message. I mean, um, dude, just the way it's like you recognized fear, um, as you were, were healing coming through your journey, I can totally relate. Now I haven't gone and done a triathlon, especially not an Ironman. I'll be doing one in the spring not an Ironman, but a triathlon in the spring, yeah. but dude, you're crushing it. And that's where I'm just like, I can totally see where it's like been that thing that transforms you and just that you're not sitting in a place, just letting fear overwhelm you. Instead, you're like, I'm going to do it in spite of it. So absolutely love that. Well, here's the beautiful thing about that, man, that the fact that you're doing a sprint triathlon, I mean, and, and any kind of activity whatsoever is that you know, the majority of the population won't get off the couch to do it. You know, so we, yeah. we're either expanding our comfort zones or our, our comfort zones are compressing upon us and our comfort zones are getting smaller. And, you know, to, to take that step to do the sprint, that's something 99.99% of people will never do. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just an impressive feat, my brothers. So that's awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, it was kind of one of those next steps. It's something I've wanted to do since 
like 80, 1988, 89. Yeah. And I just, I let fear control me in that aspect of it. And, uh, then I was getting ready to do one in 2000 when COVID hit and was like, Nope, that ain't happening. (laughs) (laughs) They kind of got shut down. But, uh, a few months ago, my, one of my daughters was talking trash and she's like, "Eh, I'll bet you I can beat you in a 5k old man. I was like, look, I'm older than you. I get that. Uh, but I'm still not taking that laying down. So I was like (laughs) the next step after a 5k is like, Hey, if you've trained for this, you know, pursue the next step, which is something you've always dreamt about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hats off to my daughter for, uh, you know, being the trash talker. I don't know where she gets it from. Must be her mother. (laughs) Right. Yeah. As long as we can get it from somewhere. I mean, we, we, wherever we can get the motivation from absolutely. And, and yeah, you're not, you're not alone in like, you know, putting your, putting your dreams on hold because of fear. I mean, that's something that's just, I've lived with my entire life. And, first time I saw the Iron Man on television, I was in the midst of my alcoholism, fear and all that kind of stuff. And I saw it and I remember being so, so inspired by it, like watching that show on television, watching all of these amazing, seemingly normal people crossing this incredible finish line and having that spark of like, wow, what if I could do something like that? And then having the fear overwhelm it and just, you know, take it over and having my brain lie to me about it. And then putting it, you know, convincing myself that I could never do that. I mean, that's just like, that was a transformative moment in and of itself because it plants that seed. So even though it plants a seed in like 1988, uh, you do it in 2023, it's, it's, you know, the seed's still there. And it's, and that, and that seed of what if I could still sits within us. That's amazing. Yeah. And the ironic thing is like you and I talked about this when, when we were first, you know, meeting, was that like Mark Allen was the guy that I was watching dude in Hawaii. I was like, Heck yeah. Holy mackerel. Look at this dude. Go, you know, that was tour de France, you know, Iron Man. I was like, man, if I could be that kind of man, that caliber. And then you and I were talking and he was one of your coaches, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, Hey, I want to get coaching from him. Cause this is the path I'm going to go. I was like, this is way too small a world. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, I think it just, to me, kind of, it, it strengthens the thing that like the concept and the actual need for men to be in relationships with other men, because it's like your experiences are different than my experiences. There's similarities, mm-hmm. but we can both bolster each other and speak into each other if we allow that to, you know, to be the case. Right. Cause oftentimes we're like, don't say anything negative about me, you know, Adam, I don't want to hear it. Whereas it's like, Hey, Adam, this is what I want to go do. You know, this is where I want my life to go. What do you see? And I, I think that is just like the biggest gift we can give ourselves. If we put ourselves in that position of openness and vulnerability is to say like, all right, bring it on, Adam. What am I doing? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's, there is so much power in it. I mean, and, and, to find the group of men. And I always, I always like, you know, before I got sober, I always felt like the idea of a bunch of men to getting together, it's like a fraternity, it's an unhealthy, it's toxic and all this kind of stuff. And, but I, I kind of got the, I got the message when I got sober, like, because I started going to men's stags meetings, like for, for, for in Alcoholics Anonymous and learning that finding that person or finding that group of people, that have this thing that you want and building a relationship with those people 
That's the most powerful. That's the most powerful leverage we can ever get in this life. Finding the people that have what we want. And in, in AA, for me, it wasn't like the guy who was driving a Maserati or, or, or the guy who was, you know, but at that time, like the biggest thing to me was like, I just don't want to be miserable in my own head. And like, it, and, and, and I'm looking at a, another guy who's in there, who's a kindergarten teacher who, you know, is just the happiest guy on earth. And he's every single day he's there. And he says this, you know, I've never had it so good. That's what he was saying. And like, it's like, that's going to be my sponsor. Cause I want to figure that out. I want to get the Kool-Aid that that guy's drinking and figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And by, by God's grace, he, he, he guided me through, you know, my, my experience in, in AA and, and kind of set the tone for how I would try and find those relationships in the future and how I would come to like, look at Mark Allen and think the same thing. That guy has it made. He's like, I would exercise like before I, you know, before I figured the exercise thing out, I would always like listen to the conventional wisdom of you got to, you got to lift to failure. You got to give 110%. You got to go hard all the time. Stay hard. All this kind of stuff that we hear. And he was saying, he was saying, no, I put on a heart rate monitor and I, and I give about 80% consistently. And I'm like, what? And you're that fast. So people were winning world championships are giving 80%. That doesn't make sense, but I want to figure that out. And that appeals to me. And so it's like, you find those things that are, that are like, you get curious about, especially when they come from people that have what you want. And then you just like, seek it out. And that's just, it's just worked, you know? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Especially when it's contradictory to what most of the stuff out there is saying and, mm -hmm. and like the beliefs that are being spoken. Yeah. Well, let me jump back because I rabbit trailed us. So <laughs> let me jump back there. <laughs> That's probably my fault too. <laughs> nah, dude. Um, so as far as we talked about professional, mm -hmm. but what does it look like personally in, you know, like today, what does personal life look like for you? Yeah. I mean, personal life is, is great. I live in Denver, Colorado, um, not without our, our challenges. And this is an important thing. I mean, like, you know, I've achieved a lot of what I've wanted to achieve in, in life. You know, I've, I've, I've made it to the top of the triathlon world stage. I've, you know, I'm, I'm running a company. I'm truly blessed, but there's, you know, challenges still seem to find us, you know, whenever we, we experience those things. And, um, and so I'm finding, you know, it's, it's a daily thing for me to be working and, and trying to manage my mindset, my mental health and, and the overwhelm the, the you know, the, the, the constant relationship with fear that I, that I have because I've, I've learned over the years. And I think that that's, that's one of the ways in which my personal life is, is really doing well today is that I no longer fight fear. I no longer battle against it. I have learned to embrace it, build a relationship with it and start to have more of a, of, of, of an active relationship with it that, that, that brings greater harmony to my life even despite how big the challenges might seem on, on certain things. And, um, yeah, so personal life, you know, I'm married, I have two kids, um, you know, and, and, um, and, and both of them are in school now. And there's some challenges certainly there with mental health and everything that a lot of kids are going through. Um, but, uh, it, it kind of, it, it gives me the motivation to continue sharing that message of there's hope beyond hopelessness. Things feel hopelessness, hopeless 
a lot of times in our lives, but if we just keep persevering, there's, there's hope beyond hopelessness. And do you see that sometimes that hopelessness is just like that, that inner voice, that critique or those experiences just kind of being flashed back and being like thrown, not so much, I guess, thrown in our face, but shown to us to kind of keep us in the place that we're at. Do you see that? I, oh, I absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely do see that. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like a, a, a wired connection and a false wiring between, you know, that, that feeling that we feel of hopelessness, of, of, of dread, of fear, of whatever, however that may be showing up Mm -hmm. of like this, this, this challenge that's wired into our, our primitive, primitive brain that shares that anytime you feel fear, that's something you should get away from as quickly as possible. So our brain is screaming at those moments, like, uh, uh-uh, this isn't, you know, this is hopeless. You, there's no way out. You should just get out now. And, and all of that, you know, all of those, all of that messaging coming, coming into our brain. And so, yeah, I absolutely feel that, that hopelessness. And in those times, this is, this is like the most, the, the, the simplest solution we can come to on this is, is mindfulness and mindfulness is very simply awareness plus curiosity and awareness and curiosity equals mindfulness. So when, when we have those moments of hopelessness and we feel this like sense of dread coming in our minds and, and there's no solution, you know, it, now, and this is never a perfect science because you feel it in the moment, you got to, you can separate the feeling from the, what your brain's saying and you say, Oh, I'm aware this feeling of hopelessness. What is that about? Is that really true? Is, is that, you know, is, uh, and start asking those, those, you know, why questions or those how questions of like, what, what's really going on there. And, um, and that starts to separate it out and separate you out from the actual feeling. You're not the feeling, you're not the emotion, you're the person experiencing that. And there's a purpose behind every single fear that we have. And the question is, now let's look at that fear and break it down. Fear, evolutionarily speaking, is danger related. Don't go into the cave because there's a bear in there. We want to avoid that bear. But within the last few hundred years or so, we haven't been facing a lot of bears. We haven't been facing a lot of like serious danger, but that fear is still triggered by something. And I, and, you know, I may be jumping around here, so I, apologize but um but th- there's there was something i learned through the process of sobriety when i met that sponsor i went through a fourth step an- inventory and part of that fourth step inventory was to come face to face with my fears literally he put a, a piece of paper in front of me that had a had had the words fears written on big bold letters in the top of it he said i want you to write down every single fear you have like you know from the fear of spiders to the fear of like nuclear war doesn't matter write down those fears and then when I wrote them down, I, was, I realized, you know, after really assessing that a lot of the fears that we have or that I had, and I think we generally have, are not related to danger. But, and so when I looked at that, I was like, okay, they're not related to danger. What are they related to? And as I went through my list, and I think this applies to most people, that list that I saw were related to really three root fears aside from danger. And those were uncertainty meaning you're, there's an uncertain future. There's something you don't know that's going to happen. There, you know, you're, you're afraid of what you don't know. And the second was overwhelm. Like you're just overwhelmed. There's so much on your plate. So much is, is feeding on you 
The result is panic. You have panic. And then the third, which is a big one, everybody gets this one, the uh, self-doubt. And that one leads to shame. Those are the three root fears that you look at. But when you can look at those in, in that curious space, in that curious space, what you can come to is you can realize, what are these telling me? And then when you really look deeply at that, it's just that you're pushing up against the edge of your comfort zone. That's all it's telling you. You're just pushing up against the edge of your comfort zone because your comfort zone's right there. Now, the question becomes is, is that a healthy way to keep pushing a little bit further to grow your comfort zone? Or do you want to just kind of go in a different direction? So now you can look at it as an opportunity. So it's not danger fear, it's opportunity fear. And that's that's what kind of shifts that that idea of if it feels hopeless, get curious, find out what that is. Are you overwhelmed? Are you are you uncertain? Are you feeling self-doubt? Now flip it. Where's the opportunity? Yeah, that makes sense. And the the other thing to <laughs> I don't know about you. I was very creative. If you asked me, I wouldn't have considered myself that. But this imagination that I would have of like would run wild. It's like a train going downhill, no brakes, pedaled on the metal kind of thing. Yeah. Where I would think up the worst scenario. And that became the most likely scenario until like you're talking about the curiosity. Um, I was taught like step back on a scale of one to 10, mm-hmm. how likely is this to happen? And it would be like a two or three. <laughs> and yet I'm sitting there like, oh my God, there is no other option that's going to happen except this worst case scenario. Yeah. And so I'm setting myself up for that to be the only possible outcome and life is hopeless, right? At that point, it's like, I can't do anything about this. Oh, what, how am I ever going to recover? Oh, you can't recover. Yeah. Great. Now what? But like when you're talking about this curiosity aspect, dude, we can step back and just, okay, great. The brakes have gone out. I'm afraid of what's that's going to do to the budget. Where's that going to be? And you know, like what's that going to affect my marriage and are the kids going to be able to eat and just everything runs rampant instead stepping back and looking at it kind of detached. Like once you're actually looking at it, I love that, how you've described it going, okay, wait a minute. How likely is this? What other options are there? What can I do? Mm-hmm. And once we kind of take tame i guess it's almost like the lion right we're taming the lion in the circus yeah uh we tame our fear a little bit it can totally change us um to seeing other things that were we were blinded from before yeah and uh so i want to i want to kind of since we're already talking about fear jump into um talking about alcoholism because that was from from our conversations dude it was like the the fear was what really led you to alcoholism and was kind of like the, I wouldn't call it a gateway drug, but it was a gateway or a path that led you to that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, so I, I grew up in the in the 80s where, where, you know, our society cared more about keeping kids off of drugs than their own mental health. Um, they, they ignored the mental health and they, and they, they talked a lot about drugs and what happened more people on drugs because of mental health. <laughs> so, you know, that's just, that's the war on drugs <laughs> in a nutshell. But, um, <laughs> um, but 
you know, when, when I was growing up, you know, obviously we didn't talk a lot about that. I was considered something of a worry wart, which means that I was just worried about everything. Like anything that we would do, it's like, Hey, we're going to go drive to, you know, Arizona. It's like, Oh, well, isn't it going to be hot there? Or are we going to, you know, that kind of like, you know, just constant like rumination on this kind of stuff. My brain was always going that translated a lot into my social life as a child too, where I just generally was afraid. I really, really cared deeply about what people felt about me, which always works out. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, you know, so I had a fear of talking to girls and it, it wasn't like a completely debilitating thing at that time. It was just a social awkwardness. Um, and, but it, it went unchecked for a long time. And, you know, I, I, I just didn't really learn, lean into it or, or try to focus on the mental health aspect. I've just pushed it down. I pushed it down. I kept every, every experience that I had playing baseball. I stepped away from pitches because I was afraid of being hit by the ball. I never tried to get better. I never tried to see what it would be like to learn to, to lean into it. But I let my comfort zone collapse on me a little bit, you know, in those cases. Mm-hmm. And so I lived a relatively kind of comfort zone kind of childhood got to college first time really outside of my comfort zone and I discover alcohol and I realized for the first time that first sip that I take of alcohol I was I was at a party uh, with some friends you know and I wasn't a party or anything like that growing up but this was like when I was 18 go to a party keg of Mickey's lager on hand which at the time was the fancy beer and um <laughs> and I got the red solo cup and I took a sip and it was like, you know, kind of that, that instinct we all have when you, when we have our first sip of beer, it tastes like, tastes like, you know, it tastes disgusting. Yeah. Then the feeling hits and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, warm hug from the inside out. And I just felt like everything like just was solved in that instance. It was like, you know, you know, those moments in a movie where it like just flashes and like everything is solved and you're like, Oh my gosh, that's the answer. That's like how it felt because it was like, I was immediately, I was more social. I was talking to girls. I was, I was doing all of the things that I wanted to do that normal kids were doing. And there were no consequences. I had, you know, I had the equivalent of like two beers, went home, got a great night's sleep, didn't wake up with a hangover and remembered the entire night. And so that was like my first experience. And it was just like, and I didn't feel the urge to like, I wasn't like going to go like, oh, I need to go get my fix now. It was like, no, I thought about it. I would have loved to have repeated it, but it wasn't like I was thinking about alcoholism because alcoholism just didn't enter my mind. My visions of alcoholism, kind of going back to the D.A.R.E. program, my visions of alcoholism were people sleeping in dumpsters or people that were that had traumatic childhoods or were abused, certainly not well-adjusted people. But that is happening all over the United States where people are having this experience. And that there's no light shine. There was no light shined on it. Fortunately, I think today we've, we're doing better with that. But mm. the the insidious path that happened was like you know gradually I would keep drinking, you know, keep kind of resolving my anxiety out of it. But by the third year of college, I started experiencing these severe panic attacks. Like, and I didn't know what they were. I just you know was studying for an exam for the first you know uh, when I've had my first one, and I experienced this, like this, this sensation that I had this horrible, deadly disease and, um, and it was so certain in my mind 
it was the only thing that I was ever really certain about. And I collapsed to the floor and I couldn't breathe. And I just started sobbing uncontrollably. And those, that was the first of many, many panic attacks. And the thing that I found that would work for it obviously was drinking more. And I didn't want to tell anybody about my panic attacks because I knew I, in my heart that I was crazy about it. I knew that wasn't true. I didn't have a horrible, deadly disease, but I was just, why am I so certain about this? Why is this happening? And so alcohol became a bigger and bigger problem for me in that time. Hmm. And were you seeing like other friends, other college classmates that were struggling with the same stuff? Or was it just like you were the only one that was having the panic attacks and, and, you know, amplifying the fear of, Hey, these test results and, and, you know, other daily, uh, situations. Was it just you or did you see like friends that were having the same struggles? I didn't really see a lot of people. I mean, not outwardly having the same struggles. And I think if they, if, if they were, it was probably an, a similar internal struggle that I was having that, you know, it was just, they didn't want to talk about it. And I, and I, you know, mentioning the test results and things like that. I, I, I went to the doctor a number of times because I'm just like, I just have to make sure I don't have cancer. Right. You know, I just have to make sure. Yeah. And so I'd go and I would say like, well, I'm just, well, what are your symptoms? Uh, I don't know. My, my lymph nodes, they're giant. You know, I've, I've got this like sore throat. It's, it's the symptoms are there. It's cancer. And, uh, and the doctor would kind of shrug it off and say, no, it's you, you, you've got a cold. And even there, it was ignored. It was like in in the doctor's office where it's supposed to be a safe place where maybe looking at deep. Why do you think like asking the questions again, getting curious, never got the curiosity of like, why do you think you have cancer? Maybe that would have led down the path of I just it's it just so certain. No, no, no. Sounds like you're having a panic attack. Sounds like you're sounds like you have having some a hypochondria or anxiety around this. Maybe you can talk to somebody. I was not advised that I talked to anybody until I was like well into my twenties. Um, and, um, and by the way, best thing I've ever done for myself was, was find a therapist that I could resonate with. I've been with the same therapist for 15 years. Uh, she's been with me when I was in my alcoholism and, and outside of it, she's huge accountability. Um, but yeah, it, so I never saw it outwardly from, from other people in, in that terms. It's certainly not in my circles. And it led me to believe that I was just crazy and I was alone. Uh, but I know now 40 million people at least, and this is pre-COVID numbers. So 40 million people, I guarantee it's more now, have some form of anxiety uh, disorder or some kind of, a, a, some kind of daily anxiety experience that is, that is strong enough to be debilitating. And uh, so it's, it's, it's very pervasive, very prevalent. Yeah, I would say like with the last three years, dude, the the escalation of like violence and the different ways to medicate, right? Right. There's no way to like say that stuff hasn't come to the forefront because otherwise there's really no need for, you know, medicating and, and coping with those anxieties and our depression and fears, it's like if, if it was, you know, decreasing, mm -hmm. you'd see less people on, you know, like antidepressants and stuff. Right. Right. And we're seeing just the opposite. So it's like, this has been 
you know, you talked about things compressing for me, it, I think of like star Wars, man, sorry, (laughs) movies and pictures, you know, I see like the trash compactor scene, right? Everything gets a lot more amplified and, and confined and just, uh, taken up that those extra couple notches. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely one that we have to be mindful of that stuff. And, and like you shared earlier, look at it with curiosity and just kind of step back. So as you, you know, graduated from college and continued on, how did the, the need for alcohol in dealing with anxiety, how did that continue to, to play out? Yeah, well, I mean, the the progression of the disease, it's very commonly said that first it's fun, then it's fun with problems, then it's just problems. And that's definitely the trajectory it took for me. And that's why it is so, I would say, insidious, because you have this thing that there's no indication that it it's going to be a problem for you, that you're going to be a problem drinker. You're going to use it as a coping mechanism. And I and so and and there were no consequences. It was fun for a period of time. Within a few years, it became fun with problems where it was like, you know, well, now I'm starting to get in trouble a little bit with the law. I've got a minor in possession with alcohol. You know, I, I, I got a drunk in public and, you know, it's just like, these are things that happen more, well, less commonly with college kids now. And, and now I'm like, okay, well, so those are problems. I got to keep that stuff in check, but you know, it's still fun. And people still know me as like, you know, the guy, and it's like, I'm starting to get hangovers, but you know what? It's just like, you know, I, I, that's not, it's just the one time. And so you're tr- trying to convince yourself, trying to fight to get back to that point where it was like just fun and where, where you had that moment, then it's problems. And that for, so after graduating from college, trying to get into the workforce, that's really when my life just became this, this, this vicious cycle of white knuckling it through the day to get through a work day to prove that I was quote unquote functional. And drinking myself into a stupor um, on the weekends, I was a, I was a weekend warrior when it came to drinking. And those weekends gradually got longer. It, used, it started like Friday and Saturday, then it was Thursday through Sunday. Then maybe I'd include Monday from time to time, and then maybe it turned into the whole week. Um, and that's that's kind of how it went. But like I would always set those rules for myself to prove that, like you know, or just to just to prove to myself really that you know, I had some semblance of control and I can manage my, my fear, my anxiety and, 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 and not go over the deep end or not compromise my career or anything like that where I'm working. But it was just the effort, the energy. I mean, it was, it was a living hell because my whole life was just like either complete and utter fear and, and, and wanting to get to that next drink, just, just dreadful or being in that stupor of like, you know, just numbness. And that all came to a head when I broke the very last rule that I said I would never, ever, ever break. Um, when I was 32 years old, so this is, you know, going on almost 15 years of drinking. And, um, I, um, I promised myself I would never drink and drive, never get behind the wheel after drinking. And then, you know, um, even that rule, I started to break. And uh, it came to a head when I got into an accident, a DUI accident that, you know, by grace, by whatever you want to call it, uh, nobody was hurt. And thank God. I mean, um, and, um, uh, but, you know, it proved to me that 
I had no control, zero control over my life, over that, over alcohol, over my fears, over anything. And as I sat in the jail cell, my two options were that I could end my life because I was a danger to other people. And, and, you know, I didn't care about myself, but I was, I was like, I was no good to this world. I was a danger to everybody. I was a danger to people just by living on it. Um, or I could get help and go to, go to AA, um, which I had tried from time to time in the past, but always thought that they were different than me because, you know, they were all the, the guys behind the dumpster kind of thing or this or that, <laughs> that was my justification. This time I was willing. I did it. I went in and that, you know, that was the last time I drank. And then I did the work in getting sober. And that's where I say that there's hope beyond hopelessness. Because my attitude of being in that jail cell, my, my, my point of view of being in that jail cell was that this is the end. I didn't know whether I'd hurt anybody or whether I'd, and, and at that point it was just like, I, you know, I was, I was the worst person on the planet. I was something I hated and, and everything was hopeless after that. But that little glimmer of willingness to heal, um, that's what made all the difference. And here today, because I walked in those rooms and I just gave myself over to it. So at that time, when you kind of hit that, that last ditch, you know, kind of situation, mm -hmm. were you married, have kids? Like what did life look like for you at that time to kind of be at that crossroad of, do I just end it all? Or, you know, <laughs> here's option two, right. you know, like going to AA, which I've gone to before. And I'm not the guy in the dumpster that I saw in dare. And, you know, you're, you're still not at that point, but you, you're willing to go to AA. What did the rest of life look like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, so I did have, uh, my wife, I had my two kids. They, my, my son was one years old. My daughter was about four at the time. And, um, and I, you know, life looked relatively normal and, and I made sure of that because I wanted to make sure that the lifestyle that we were living was as cookie cutter as plain as possible. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing wrong. Everything's okay. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, you know, put the kids to bed and, um, and, you know, the wife and I just, I would start drinking heavily and it, wine was my thing because I knew that like hard alcohol was just, it, 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 it was too quick for me. And like, that was like where I would just like, I, my, my panic, my, everything would go crazy. And, but wine was like where I could drink and still maintain sanity in some, in some ways, even though I would still drink into a blackout. Um, and all of it was insane. And so I'm not even going to even pretend that there was any sanity related to it, but, um, but that's the way life looked. I made sure that I was, I was living, trying to be the best dad that I could trying to be the best, best worker that I could and, and everything. Um, meanwhile, I was, I was drinking to kind of numb myself. My, my goal, you know, even, even then it was, it was like, I, I desperately cared about other people and what, what they thought of, of me. And, 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 you know, that's a very selfish thing to think a lot of times it's like, well, I want everyone to like me, but 
that's the way I felt. And, and that was true of like, you know, all of my family, all of my, my kids and everything. So I just put on this charade, this, this, this charade of like, I'm functioning, I'm not drinking a lot. And then boom, it came, comes to a head when I lose complete control of that last rule that I ever had. So I want to ask from a different perspective, Sure, from conversations that you've had with your wife since that time, we can often look and believe that we're putting on this facade, you know, this veneer of, Hey, I've got everything together when nobody else around us believes that, Mm -hmm. right. We're only fooling ourselves and that belief carries us and allows us to continue in those, those actions, those behaviors that are, you know, medicating and helping us cope cope. Was your wife at that time, was she fooled or was she seeing what was going on or like, where was she at? Um, in like how she saw that things, things were with you. I think at the, at that time, and, and we've certainly gone through a lot of work and, you know, she's been, she's an amazing woman, my wife, who, um, who stopped drinking with me and, um, and has been sober ever since as well. And, you know, we've, we're, we've have one of those relationships where we've been able to grow together, especially beyond that. But I definitely was not able to hide it from her. I think she was just resigned to it at that time that it was just like, there's, there's nothing you can do with an active alcoholic. Who's not willing to heal uh, somebody who's not willing. And so it's just kind of like she was surviving too. And I was holding her hostage. Hmm. Yeah. And we can fool ourselves, but it's like, our, our belief of what we're portraying out there. It's almost like the, uh, the emperor's new clothes kind of thing, you know, where it's like, Hey, look, I'm dressed in, in furs and robes and everything like that. And it's like, nah, dude, you're, <laughs> you're, you're in your underwear kind of thing. And, uh, people can see the truth, even though we think we're fooling them. Yeah. Um, so you went to AA and, like you shared earlier, you knew you looked for the guy that had what you wanted, right? Yeah. What does this dude have that I don't? Cause he's living out the life I want. Right. So you're going to AA, like how does AA provide the path for you to bring about the, the change in your life? Cause you didn't stop with just, Hey, I'm going to get sober. You then continued on to, Hey, what's this triathlon thing? And I'm like, what? That's a, that's like a paradigm shift, man. Just, um, you know, how did, how did that get you from point A to point B? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start by saying, I mentioned that I, I saw the Ironman triathlon on television while I was still in my active. So it was probably about 2006 or so. And I was just watching television on a Saturday afternoon and on pops on this like sweeping views of Hawaii. And I was already like obsessed with Hawaii because it's like somewhere I wanted to move. And so any show that comes on showing the Hawaii coastline, I'm like, I'm in. And I was just like, you know, watching the show and, and I see these athletes swimming, biking, running. I'm like, okay, that's, that's interesting. Is this the Olympics or what is this? Then I hear the announcer come on and say, tell me the distance of each event, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, 
26.2 mile run. And I'm like, oh, wow, how many days does that take? It's like in one day. And I'm like, if, as if on cue, I'm like, oh, wow, okay, uh, one day. Who's doing this? This must be crazy Australians and Speedos and crazy things. And yes, there were a lot of crazy Australians and Speedos. But the thing that inspired me was that there were just like a lot of people that had overcome these significant challenges. There were people like like uh, John Blaze who who was suffering with ALS. And a year later, he would be in a wheelchair at the event watching it. But at that time, he was competing with ALS. And there was people like the the uh, uh, the Iron Nun, the the eighty year old nun who was competing, eighty years old. Uh, uh, Rick and Dick Hoyt, the father and son team, where the son had cerebral palsy, the father was pushing him. Sadly, they both passed recently, but mm. the father was pushing him the entire distance of the race. And it was just like watching this; it was like just demonstrating what's possible for humanity. Like I said, that was that instinct where it's like that moment comes up. It's like, what if I could? And the fear was just like, shut it down. And so I went back to drinking beer and feeling sorry for myself for the next, next many years until I, I, uh, I had my wake up call and, and, um, and started getting sober. And so kind of getting into that sobriety working through. So in my previous attempts at sobriety, as I, as I tried to get through it, I would try to get into the, the, the steps I would, I, I, as somebody who's afraid to approach people, I was always like putting off trying to find a sponsor because it's like, Oh, that's, you know, that's a relationship. I don't want another relationship, especially with another man who's going to, I don't know what that's going to do. It's, you know, um, and, and it, and it'll be, it, it'll, I can't get back in or whatever. And then, um, and I'd always go through one, two, three, the first three steps, and then I'd be out. And so this, experience of like wanting to really, really wanting it. I was like, I have to hold on to this for dear life. I have to find that sponsor. And I, I found that sponsor that I wanted. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm going to do what it, do whatever it takes to, to hold on to that. And I've got to make it to step four because I've never made it to step four. Before. And that's the first action step. That's the part where we have to take the inventory. You know, that's where we, where we take our personal inventory. So it's like, yeah, let's get through the first three steps. Okay. You know, one, two, three, all right, four. All right. Inventory. And finally, like, you know, got through that and got through the 12 steps and, and mentioned the fears that the, uh, uh, the, the part of step four, where I talked through, where we worked through the fears, which was my big thing and that epiphany that I had there. And, um, uh, so spent a year in sobriety. And one of the things that I constantly heard from all of the elders in sobriety was this important, uh, rule. Don't make any major life changes your first year in recovery. That they just tell you that because they don't want you to focus on anything else, just sobriety. And it makes sense because, you know, otherwise if you're starting to like make geographical changes, you're throwing a bunch of wrenches into this process that's required. So I did what I was told, no major life changes. But what do you do when you hear somebody emphatically tell you for a year, don't make any major life changes? That's like the first thing you think about, like the, when a year hits, you're like, all right, what major life change am I going to, am I going to make? And the amazing thing about sobriety for me was that not only was it like just life changing in that path, I mean, just that whole experience of transformation is that my panic, my anxieties were lifted because I was working it. I was working on myself. I was 
I was finding that harmony. I found that higher power. And I know a lot of people shy away from the idea of God, but I found God in those rooms. I, I reconnected with God. It's such an important relationship. And, and, you know, I, I, I just, I, I, so that anxiety was, was lifted and I was able to look at fear in a different way now that I named it. Once you name it, I could see it in a different way. And so when I hit that year, I had this point of reference now of something that I could achieve that I'd never thought that I could achieve before sobriety. Like, holy cow, the world's open to me. I've expanded my comfort zone a bit and I've, I've proved to myself that I could do something I never thought that I could do. Remember that guy that a year ago sitting in jail who's hopeless? I'm sober now because of that. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to work through there, but I'm sober now. And what else can I do? And that led me to remember the Iron Man. And that same moment of like inspiration popped up in me. And then the fear popped up immediately again. It didn't go away. It popped up again. My brain tried to tell me again, you can't do that. You're not, you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. You're unhealthy. You could barely walk up the stairs. What are you talking about? You can't do that. But it was like this time I had that point of reference and I took a breath and I reflected on it. Is this really danger or is this opportunity? And so I made the commitment then to, 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 to start to pursue it. And, um, and, um, and yeah, and, and really researched it and was like asking the questions of like, all right, well, how do you train for that much distance? And then I found out about this, you know, Mark Allen and, and I found out about the Maffetone method and it made me severe, seriously question what we're being told about how we approach achievement and success in general. And, um, and, and it totally shifted my mindset on that, that we don't have to give 110% all the time. If you're being told that, if people are telling you need to get up at 4am and do all this and, and do this before everyone else wakes up, or you're a lazy or you're, or you're this, or you have to, you have to give 110%, you have to lift that last set. It's all BS. All of it just have to give 80% consistently. Consistency trumps that, you know, that the intensity every day of the week. Consistency trumps intensity every day of the week. And um, so that that's kind of in a nutshell how I transformed into like, that's why I want to pursue the Ironman. Dude. Yeah. And I will 100% agree with you that the consistency is the, the key factor of that, where it's like putting in those small, small, high effort spurts doesn't carry us through to to where we want to get to. Right. Well, as you've continued along, what are like some other tools that have gotten you, you know, AA got you to that point, And then you've got the triathlon that you, you're absolutely crushing it. What are like some tools that have continued to help you, you know, do that, that huge you know, f mental and physical feat of an Ironman and then continue on to, 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 to today where you're at, like, what are some tools that have helped you out in, in, uh, making those transitions? Yeah. I think, I think one of the biggest ones that I've, I've kind of turned into something of a formula for myself that, uh, that is a philosophy on how I look at fear, because again, going back to fear is, is, Fear is opportunity is really uncertainty, overwhelm, and self-doubt. 
And so uncertainty can, you know, kind of get, get managed by really visualizing that, that future, like really visualizing your future self. And there's, there's a problem that we have with how we approach time. And I want to tell everybody how we can become a very healthy time traveler. Uh, the way, the way we look at time now is, is we tend to dwell on the past and we, we tend to obsess about the future and we tend to ignore the present. But if we could turn that into, we reflect on the past and we learn the lessons from the past, we reflect on it. We, um, and we visualize the future that we want. We, we practice it with intentionality and we have gratitude in the present. That's the healthiest form of time traveler that we can be. So that's an important tool that like, if you can incorporate that into your daily habits, it's, it's really a game changer, really helps you to bring that mindfulness, that awareness and curiosity to your life on a daily basis that helps you get some level of certainty of where you want to go, where you want to be. So helps with that uncertainty piece, even though you have to also recognize that uncertainty is okay. It's okay to feel that and, and it's okay to go anyway. Um, and then the second piece I like to, to tackle those, those other two, the overwhelm and the self-doubt, a lot of those times those come because we're reinforced with these messages that we have to go hard, go home, no pain, no gain, give 110%. Um, and that's where my formula for flow comes in, which is the 80%, 5% formula for flow. The 80% re represents exactly what I mentioned about what I discovered through Mark Allen's work of giving 80% consistently. Find your 80% in everything you do, regardless of whatever achievement you want to go after. Um, it could be a fitness pursuit. It could be a new business. It could be, uh, be you know, an investment, anything that you want to, to pursue. Give 80% consistently. If anyone tells you they're giving 110%, that's, that's dangerous because- the beauty about 80% is that you build endurance with that 80% while giving yourself the capacity. You can, you can, you can, uh, uh, in, you can grow your energy while not depleting it all. You can improve your capacity without depleting it. And over time, your 80% becomes everyone else's 110%. And at that point, everybody thinks you're giving 110%, but you're really not. You're still giving the same 80% you've always been giving. And the second part of it is the 5%, which is how much past your comfort zone you have to push. Because a lot of times we might think that we have to do a massive swan dive beyond our fears to get over them. But in reality, it's, it's just simple, small steps beyond our comfort zones. What is that next 5% beyond your comfort zone? Uh, if I use an example from my own triathlon journey, I had no clue how to swim. And my biggest fear was swimming in the ocean past the breakers. But in order to compete in a triathlon, in an Ironman, I had to swim past the breakers and do it with hundreds of other athletes that were punching and kicking and submerging each other. Mm. Hundred levels of fear beyond just swimming past the breakers. So I took it to the next 5%. I had to learn to float in a pool. And so I learned to float. And once I got comfortable with that, once that was my comfort zone, the next step was swim 25 yards without stopping. My next comfort zone, so on and so forth. But so that by the next year, the next 5% in front of me was like, okay, there's that, there's that, uh, uh, there are the breakers. I'm going to swim past them, I'm gonna punch and kick my way through the, through the race. And then I'm going to make it through because that's just 5% more. Uh, so those, that's really the 80%, 5% rule. And it's really a lot more art than science because you learn to feel it, but it's good to connect with that in your own mind of like, when you feel like you're feeling overwhelmed 
or burning out, or you're starting to starting to really, uh, you can like, look at that, look at how much you're giving and say, maybe I just back it off 80%. Okay. Give that 80%. But when you're feeling that self-doubt about like the massive thing, well, what's just that next step right in front of me, that next 5% step. That's all it takes. So that's, that's the formula for, for flow. Mm, super powerful. And I love the fact that it's like, you're, you're growing almost, you're almost talking about like your 80% being somebody else's 110, right? They're, they're beyond max. Um, you're sustaining that. That's right. like going to the gym and it's like, Hey, I started just benching the bar. And now, you know, two years later, while everybody else has been here for January and maybe June, yeah. you've been there the whole time. And now you're doing, you know, 200, you know, pounds and pushing what they're doing. So yeah, I love that, man. That is super powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me ask you, how can men connect with you outside of, you know, living fearless today? How can they, they get in touch with Adam Hill? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I would, uh, I have a podcast where I talk to other people who have done the same thing. My podcast is flow over fear. So, uh, check that out, subscribe, give it a listen after you listen to this show. Um, and, um, and, um, if you want to find me on the, uh, on the socials, I'm on Instagram and TikTok at the Adam C Hill. Uh, that's the Adam Seahill. If you want to remember the Adam chill, that's, uh, that's one way to look at it too. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining, uh, joining me today and sharing your story and do just encouraging to like be consistent and play it as a long term to be present in where we are today, not just like focused in our past mm-hmm. and, uh, or look into the future, but keeping them in a perspective. So appreciate your insight and your story. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you too, brother. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much, my friend, for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to. It helps raise the show's visibility so other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode. And remember to continue putting yourself out there. Have a great one.